0: Itty friends I wonderful to see you all I thank you for friends. It is wonderful to see you all today. Thank you for being here for. Session number nine. Session number nine of 40 great philosophers and what they mean for Judaism. Excited to explore Thomas Hobbes. Whoa! 16th century. We are flying forward hundreds of years. No offense to the people we passed over in those hundreds of years. We always have to be selective. I hope they're not rolling in their graves but are celebrating our study of Hobbes, and maybe they'll be interested because they weren't alive for Hobbes, And so maybe they'll get some enjoyment out of this, wherever they are. Um, So uh, friends, let's start with a little poll question here, little poll question for you. Get a sense of your thinking. Number one, are people fundamentally good? Are people fundamentally good? Option one, most people are fundamentally selfish and they will hurt others to gain. Option two, Most people are fundamentally compassionate, and they're seeking to give and love. Option three, uh, people are complicated, mixed, and mostly unpredictable. Okay, friends, such imperfect options, such imperfect options, but what would you put down here for how you think of people? (laughs) Okay, let's see our results here. Okay. Okay. Nobody here today said, um, although Aguilera, I know you were considering it, um, most people are (laughs) fundamentally selfish and will hurt others to gain. Um, Steve, I know you brought up the middle category. Here, most people are fundamentally compassionate and seeking to give and love. And then 70%, the bulk of the room, say people are complicated and mixed and mostly unpredictable. Okay, Hobbes is going to move us to think about what are people fundamentally? And once we determine what people are, that's going to tell us how to govern people, right? We're going to govern people differently based upon how we understand their nature to be, right? In fact, much of politics is based around that assumption of what people fundamentally are. Are they fundamentally lazy or hardworking? Are they fundamentally entitled and deserving and have rights? Or are they, do they need to work for what they get? Are people fundamentally trying to steal unless they're regulated? Or or, um, are most people uh, not to be suspect of such things? Our politics are based upon these philosophical views. Okay, friends, how do we prevent our neighbors from doing bad things? Left to our own devices, will human beings primarily do evil? How do we keep our worst impulses in check? What powers must be given to the government? My gosh, you look at these debt ceiling negotiations right now, and you think about what's at stake, what both sides are arguing for, for the whole nation to not default. Fascinating. Although his work was all-compassing, and he was a noted scholar of humanities and classics, Thomas Hobbes is known first and foremost as a political philosopher and as one of the most important thinkers at the cusp of pre-democratic modernity. Hobbes was deeply influenced by the advent of modern science. He met the impactful astronomer Galileo and was engaged with the philosopher-politician Francis Bacon. Embracing the newly established reliance on science, Hobbes believed science could answer virtually all of our questions. I mean, it's almost absurd today, right, to think in such terms. But since science is kind of the first comer to modernity, right, before humanities, before democracy, before human rights, before feminism and social justice, right, science is like, oh, we can actually discover things that the ancients didn't know. We can actually think critically and figure things out. We don't just look backwards. We look forwards. So he believed we could answer all of our problems through science. In this worldview, humans, like all animals, were thought to be totally knowable and best understood almost like machines that could be taken apart and reverse-engineered. He was critical of Descartes' view of duality, that mind and body could be distinguished. In Hobbes' view, our knowledge is derived from our sense experience, which the imagination then constructs into ideas, right? The senses are primary. Because Hobbes viewed the human being as solely a biological entity, he did not seem to account for consciousness. Because for him, everything is entirely physical, including our human experience. Think for a moment about the person who denies the soul because science can't prove the soul, right? I only know of a brain, so I'm not interested in the soul. This, is, this would speak to someone like Hobbes. We are biological entities. And just as a human being is akin to a machine, there was no reality beyond our senses. All things to Hobbes were material made of physical matter. Hobbes' emphasis on empiricism has led many scholars to suspect he was an atheist. However, he also repeatedly emphasized, like Maimonides, that the human mind cannot grasp something like God. God is the only thing we can't know, right? So that is to say for Maimonides, yes, there's a God, but I can't talk about God because we can't know about anything like that. Whereas for Hobbes, up oh, I can't talk about God. Maybe there is no God, right? Because what do I know? Hobbes applied his thinking to the realm of politics in his main work, Leviathan. Leviathan's a good word to know with Hobbes, which actually takes its name from the sea monster in the Hebrew Bible. The Leviathan in the Tanakh, in the Torah, is seen as perhaps God's mightiest creation. In the book of Isaiah, God is described as destroying the Leviathan. When the world is brought to a state of justice. Here's what it says over there. In that day, the the Lord will punish with God's great, cruel, mighty sword, Leviathan, the elusive serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. God will slay the dragon of the sea. Right. My son, when falling asleep, I would say 8% of the time is thinking about the Loch Ness monster. Right, Another 8% he's thinking about some kid at school who bothered him. But the Loch Ness Monster is equal in his concerns falling asleep with the kid bothering him at school. That's how real the Loch Ness Monster is to him. Right? Um, he's pretty convinced of, uh, of this beast. In any case, we've got this Leviathan over here in Isaiah and in Tanakh. And this is what Hobbes is going to think about. In the Psalms, the Leviathan is also described as the only animal powerful enough Physically to play with God, right? Um, if you are interested in God and you're just in a playful God, you should know there's a whole theology around God as playful, God as a game player. Um, this one only touches on it. It says over here in Tehillim and Psalms, there is the sea vast and wide with its creatures beyond number, living things small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport with. So God is bored, so to speak, and God creates this sea creature to play with because us humans are no fun. Like us humans are like trading stocks and eating lunch, right? God doesn't want to do like, you know, maybe if we're playing pickleball a little more, God wants to enjoy the game, right? But if we're just out here uh, all business, it's not so fun. The Leviathan, now there's a good time, right? In the most poetic section of the book of Job, God explains explains God's own greatness to Job by saying that the only God, only God can defeat the Leviathan. God asks Job rhetorically, can you draw out Leviathan by a fish hook? Can you press down his tongue by a rope? Can you put a ring through his nose or pierce his jaw with a barb? Can you fill his skin with darts or his head with fish spears? Lay a hand on him, and you will never think of battle again. Right? So first we saw God as playing with Leviathan, but now we see God demonstrating power to say, Job, you can't wrestle the beast. Only I can wrestle the beast. Um, <laughs> so funny. In Hobbes' book, Leviathan, the title illustration contains a Latin rendering of Job, forty-one twenty-five. In which God says of the sea monster, there is no one on land who can dominate him, made as he is without fear. Ah, so for Hobbes, the Leviathan is not a monster that wreaks havoc on humanity, but a source of power symbolizing the sovereign authority of the state. Yes, there may be a king or queen, but only because a head is necessary. For there, for there to in, in, to ensure the preservation and stability of the body, right? The body are the people. The head is the king or queen. They need each other. Hobbes's Leviathan embraces social contract theory as the foundation of the state. In his this theory, a social contract is an actual or hypothetical compact between the ruled or between the ruled and their rulers, defining the rights and duties of each. However, Hobbes' social contract theory is a bit different from what we might be familiar with regarding modern democracies, of course, because this is pre-democracy. For America, the Declaration of Independence is an actual moment in history where people came together to form a new republic. It makes clear that the government gets its powers, quote-unquote, from the consent of the governed. Hobbes's social contract theory, however, is more of a myth. For Hobbes, as Encyclopedia Britannica explains, we might, we might we must make the assumption that in primitive in in primeval times, individuals were born into an anarchic state of nature. They then, by exercising natural reason, formed a society and a government by means of a social contract. So the reason we must assume such a thing, even if it cannot be factually proven, is because it is essential that the people see the sovereign as legitimate. Any undermining of the sovereign's authority can lead to its removal and a descent into chaos. Hobbes's theory of government is not inherently monarchist, but it was shaped by the English Civil War, which took place in his lifetime. When the people rose up against the monarchy— Hobbes sided with the king. He supported having a strong government because he felt that without a sovereign, humans were condemned to a brutal stage of nature, which he calls a war of all against all, right? Famously. It is not so much that Hobbes thought human beings are particularly violent, but that without any law or authority to mediate between people, individuals would have no choice but to violently pursue their self-interest in order to protect themselves against others. In the state of nature, human life is, in Hobbes' memorable words, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The only way to ensure that people can live together peacefully is if there is a sovereign who can make the law and enforce it by force if necessary. So it may feel like partisan politics are you know a new thing right but when the democratic party lashes out at mayor adams in new york city because adams is demonizing the biden administration right now for being pro migrant and how in 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 a in a upcoming presidential election can the mayor of new york city be criticizing the president, when, um, knowing the chaos that will emerge if he doesn't win, right? Um, that sense that, that Adams has a, a migrant crisis in New York City he can't handle, and he thinks Biden's allowing too many people in, and thus critiquing him. And, um, and the sense is, you will topple the whole system if you critique him, if you demonize him on this issue. And so, too, that sense that I don't care if you like the king or hate the king, if the king falls, we're all in trouble everything will be destroyed. And so you're going to have to decide, do you really want to be an agitator? Do you really want to push back when the whole system's at risk? And Hobbes says, no. Like, love the king, hate the king. Right? It's the best we got. And without it, we're going to have total chaos and civil war. In the Jewish tradition, Hobbes' sentiment about the dangers of collective life without sovereign authority is shared in Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, compiled over a thousand years earlier. There it is recorded Rabbi Hanina, the vice high priest, said, Pray for the welfare of the government. For were it not for the fear it inspires, every person would swallow their neighbor alive. Right? Just like Hobbes said, without strong central government, people will kill each other. So, right? Without strong policing, people will kill each other. And I'm sure we have a range of views on policing. But that is a common view in American society, that without strong regulations, without strong enforcement, there will be more violence rather than less. Who will people call when, when they are um, at risk physically? So, too, the rabbis say, pray for the government. It doesn't say good government. Pray for the government so people fear it and that it's strong. Because if people don't fear the government, and if they cheat on their taxes, that they'll go to jail. And if they kill someone, that they'll go to jail. Right? Um and if they abuse someone that there's going to be consequences, then people will just swallow each other alive because people are motivated by fear of consequences, right? People are not just motivated altruistically. People are motivated to not do bad because they will be caught. I'm not going to show up at late at work because I'll be seen late at work. not that, oh, I want to do my best at my job. I will not go through the red light, not because I think it's bad to go through red lights, because I don't want to ticket. it. I don't want to take it, right? Why do people... Follow laws. Why do people follow rules fundamentally? That's a major shift in moral development to get to the point where one lives by principles rather than fear of consequence. But according to Hobbes and according to most, I would even argue that most people haven't reached that level where they, they operate by the good, they operate by not getting caught ultimately. How many people would commit adultery if they knew, if they, knew they wouldn't get caught, right? Um, uh, how many people would do all kinds of things? Okay, though Hobbes Hobbes derives his model of political sovereignty from the biblical example of God's sovereignty, a closer look reveals the ways in which his political thinking differs dramatically from that of the Torah. For Hobbes, it was essential not only that there be a sovereign who was granted authority over the state, but that the sovereign's power must be absolute. Unlike modern democracies, which depend on a separation of powers and checks and balances, Hobbes argued against these things out of fear that they could undermine the sovereign's authority and usher in chaos. Hobbes shows a remarkable lack of concern for the potential abuses of a power that the sovereign may inflict upon his or her subjects, which stands in marked contrast to the Torah's approach to, to, to sovereignty. When the Jewish people approach the prophet Samuel, to appoint a king for them, he makes clear that giving one person so much power will inevitably lead to its abuse. Right? I want to remind us, Judaism was anti-monarchy up until this point, until Judaism became a monarchy tradition. Um, you know, through through King Saul and King David and through King Solomon, through the aspirations of Talmudic Judaism and biblical Judaism of. A return of monarchy with a third temple, ultimately. Here's what it says over here in Sefer Shmuel, the great book of Shmuli, right? The book of Samuel. <laughs> this will be the practice of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and appoint them as his chariots and horsemen, and they will serve as outrunners for his chariots. He will take your daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will seize your choice fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his courtiers. He will take a 10th part of your grain and vintage and give it to his eunuchs and courtiers. The day will come when you cry out because of the king whom you yourselves have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you on that day. Right? Samuel is warning the people of what happens when you have a monarchy. Furthermore, Samuel emphasizes that by appointing a king and showing obedience to a human sovereign, the Jewish people risk turning away from God and engaging in an act tantamount to idolatry. In the Bible's perspective, the king is sovereign, but he must share that sovereignty with others, particularly the prophets, who have a responsibility to rebuke the king if he violates God's law. For Hobbes, the human sovereign is above the law, makes the law, and enforces it as they see fit. In the Torah, the king is neither above the law nor its source of law, Rather, he must carry around a Torah scroll at all times as a reminder that God is the one true sovereign to whom he must show obedience. What do we make of Hobbes as Jews? To me, his reduction of the human being to their physical nature strikes me as a very flawed and simplistic understanding of human nature and human experience. Hobbes was also not a strong defender of religious liberty. He believed that regardless of our personal views, we should obey the sovereign's view of re- of religion to avoid conflict. Uh, awfully uh, convenient for him. This lack of separation between religion and state has historically been destructive for Jews and other minorities as well. There is, however, an alignment with Jewish values in how Hobbes believed that those who could not survive on their own labor deserved public support. All of Hobbes's philosophy, though stems from a view of human nature that denies the complexity of the human being, the place of a soul, and any recognizable concept of transcendent God who demands justice to whom we are all accountable. There appears to be no place in his thought for any kind of spiritual relationship or engagement. His view of the human being was a low one. We're not only merely physical, but we're also selfish, as opposed to a more Jewish view that we're bearers of the image of God. Who in, whose inclinations do both good and bad. However, we can recognize the value of being realistic about the need to rein in the worst human behavior to maintain moral order. The Jewish approach, though, might have a different solution for how to keep people moral without depending solely on the authority of the sovereign. We can largely accept Hobbes's premise that without law, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. But we can also take the view of the Jewish legal tradition that in addition to earthly sovereignty, we also need halakha, we need God's law, so to speak, as a set path to guide and govern us, right? We need a higher calling beyond just secular secular law. We need principle and conscience, morality beyond just uh, policing. Further, we have a complicated relationship to Hobbes' notion of supporting the sovereign, Given the history of monarchies as systems of exploitation, with largely no concern for the poor common person, the idea of the social contract, that the government has responsibilities to the people, is potentially an improvement on previous systems. It was a crucial advancement that Hobbes was not merely pushing people to merely submit to the monarchy, but also to see the value in our social contract. By offering a justification for sovereign authority, Hobbes implicitly acknowledges that sovereignty is not absolute and rather is dependent on the will of the people. So, too, ancient Judaism definitely did embrace a form of monarchy, and it certainly also supports the need of some governmental authorities to regulate violence and maintain order. Nonetheless, aspirationally, we should seek to amplify the individual's greater moral potential for compassion and care and for reason, rather than diminish them altogether. We should also recognize that the more that sovereign authority is invested in a small number of individuals, the greater likelihood for its abuse. Participatory government has long been a hallmark of modern democracies, and it is an essential safeguard against the abuse of power. So for us, though, the social contract goes beyond the government as we also have a covenant with God. The human side of this contract is demonstrated in the book of Exodus when the Israelites say upon receiving Torah, right, in our holiday coming up this Thursday night, Shavuot, all that the Lord has spoken we will faithfully do. While traditional Jews have little problem giving up some freedom to act according to the quote-unquote will of God, Hobbes applies this kind of submission to the state which is not something we should readily support while we can make a king out while we can make a king out of god we know that no human authority can truly live up to that standard democracy rather than a monarchy or oligarchy is the least damaging form of earthly authority so to conclude friends of course for jews we know also we too well the history of of powerful governments turning against the people they rule over. The ideal image of government we imagine should probably not be a terrifying biblical sea monster, which indeed Tanakh describes as something God will defeat. Instead, we might want to imagine society, as described in the Torah, in which the community has a special responsibility to make sure everyone's needs are met and everyone is their brother's keeper. Okay, dear friends, that was a mouthful on Hobbes. And boy, have we come a long way since the medievals um, now into the birth of pre-modernity. So I would love to hear some of your thoughts, questions, agreements, disagreements on any of this. Hi, Lauren.
1: Hi. Um, two things. One, just a reminder that constitutional <clears throat> in a constitutional monarchy like Canada, Great Britain, the rest of the Commonwealth, the monarchy is basically ceremonial and they are democracies. And theoretically, if the government were acting very much against the people, the monarch has the ability to dissolve parliament and call for elections. But that's not happened. So they are a safeguard. Um, the other thing, I think when it comes to like business, profit motivation, oops is right. Take away, <clears throat> pardon me my allergies, take away um, regulations you're going to have businesses, including... You're gonna have them take advantage. We, we had a really terrible premier of Ontario who deregulated water purification and water safety. And um, it was up to the companies to test their own water. So in the town of Walkerton, the two brothers who had that facility really didn't test. They sent in face, fake reports. People died from the E. coli that was in the water. So um, I'm a big believer in
0: uh, regulation. Awesome, Lauren. Thank you for reminding us of the constitutional monarchy middle ground um, and that it is very interesting the powers that still reside over there um, in that regard, even if they're not usually exercised. <clears throat> and yes, thank you for sharing a good example of of um, aspects where regulation may be necessary. Uh, there may be libertarians here who feel Freedom is the highest uh, value and government should never step upon liberties. And there may be people here who understand that um, people left to their own liberties will not necessarily produce the good society. Yes. Haya Agilea, then Matthew.
2: Okay. So not to go on too long about this though, but um, during Hobbes' time though, the idea of monarchy is extremely different. And this is something I have to go over with students a lot. If you think that you have rights, You don't have them unless they are actually in a constitution, and that's where you get some of the problems, though, because, well, I mean, the whole thing with that argument between King Charles I and Oliver Cromwell and his cronies and everything like that, I mean, was effectively, Englishmen thought that they had these rights, but they technically didn't, and so technically, though, should they have chopped off charles the first's head well that's one of those things that we're never going to be able to solve so consequently though when it comes to whether or not people actually you know when it comes to regulation versus it's you know a slippery slope that you are going to <clears throat> adjust for over time and keep adjusting and you know keep updating your constitution and what you know these rights are on paper and everything and so that's why i kind of like to bring it back to judaism though well i mean all of that, I mean, there's a lot that's written down. You have like, <laughs> okay, like all of these debates also, and the losing side of the debate also is written down for that particular reason. So that's one of the reasons why I kind of, I've got to go with, um, instead of Hobbes, you know, let's just say, okay, now, solitary, okay, I was tempted, because I was like, oh my gosh, solitary, poor, nasty, British, and short. Okay, but anyway, though, but... I mean, but the thing is is that well, one, um can we actually be one hundred percent sure that there is like a clear cut? One hundred percent all humans are like this kind of human nature? I don't know. But another thing though, is that um if you have, just in case hypothetically, something got screwed up, you have the minority, you know they I mean, the minority or the losing side recorded because five hundred years from now, you might need that losing side's argument again. So that's why I have to go with the Jewish approach. So anyway, I'm just throwing that out
0: there. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, both very interesting points. Um, and by the way, I think the best way to have um, build our confidence in human nature is to have a person in our lives, um, ideally more than one, but at least one who we really think is a sadiq like a really righteous person that when we see them and like, uh, I, I, she's not, she's not here so I can embarrass her. And I'm not saying this because yesterday was our anniversary. Um, but like, I could not imagine my wife in any scenario in the world, taking advantage of anyone taking something she doesn't deserve, something that's not hers doing anything for, and, and um, you know, and hopefully we all have people like that in our lives that, um like have virtually like basically no impulse to hurt someone, keep someone, get ahead of someone. Um and um and, and if we don't, we've only had people that kind of show us the other side. It's very hard to transcend that. But in any case, um Aglair, your points are your points are great over there. So thank you. Hi hi Matthew.
3: So interesting comment on the question of regulation and Remembering to write down the other side's view. In the early seventies. Uh, give me two minutes there. I have to go to cover. In the early seventies, in the beginning of the environmental movement, in I was involved defending a bad guy who had polluted. Different issue. But it turns out in Russia where there were factories, there was initially no regulation of what could go into the drinking water. A factory could dump wherever it wanted, whatever it wanted, with one exception. The town drinking water had to be drawn from below where the factory dumped its chemicals. And the idea was, initially, if the Factory pollutes and people who work there have to drink the water. They're not going to pollute. And it was an interesting idea of no regulation, but a regulation. And it worked actually for a number of years until factories were no longer owned, even within the Russian concept, locally. But there were larger groups. And all of a sudden they put in regulation. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting debate at the time of how you regulate, and more importantly, how you preserve the other view and when you look at things and do it back, which I think very often now we become too hardened in our views and don't look back and see why was this regulation put in, Mm why wasn't it put in, and what we can do about it now. So I'm gonna go on mute for a while while I drive, so I don't wanna crash the car. I'm gonna try and stay on.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, just before we go to Gary Friedlander, Very interesting point there. And, you know, actually, this concept um, is relevant in Jewish law. It's called mirtat. I'll put that in English letters on the side. Mirtat comes from the word yira, which means fear. And mirtat in Jewish law means fear of government. And how does that play out? Well, um, about 50 years ago, roughly, in America, um, observant Jews wanted to know, can we buy cow milk? Well, what's the problem? It's just cow milk. Well, how do you know it's cow milk? It could be a whole bunch of things in there. It could be pig milk. I mean, who knows what's in that in that cow milk? Well, there are regulatory bodies in the government, and if the if the 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 dairy the cow milk company is putting something in that's not cow milk, they'll in, get in trouble with the government. They are afraid of the regulators, and because of that fear of regulators. We can trust that they will do the, the, the right thing. And so this becomes a concept that any Jew who keeps kosher in America doesn't look for a kosher certification on their milk because of the concept of mirtat, that who, whoever the cow milkers are um, fear the regulators will find out if they're not using cow milk. And that's kind of an interesting notion of trust that emerged in Jewish law, trust on uh, based upon fear of regulators. And I think we could think of other you know, kind of examples like that, which it could be interesting. Okay, over to you, Gary.
4: Good morning, everyone.
1: I'd like
0: to go
4: back to the, the <laughs> concept of monarchy for a second. I found it interesting that if we look back that maybe the Jewish monarchy was different than other types of monarchies in the sense that non-Jewish monarchies had no rule of law really to follow other than how their feelings were. They, I mean, they they were the the potentate, so to speak, of the uh, of their countries, but I I find it interesting that we know that Jewish monarchy uh, had had a higher rule, you know, like Hebrew national had a higher r- a rule uh, to uh, oversee, so to speak, uh, and were bound by Torah law, Jewish law, which I find is an interesting new concept that Judaism brought brought to the world. Uh, and uh, the whole concept of consequences. I mean, King David wasn't allowed to to build the the temple because of the issue uh, with uh, the war. I can't remember her name at the moment. Uh, well he sent the husband off to uh, off to war and was killed Basheva. Thank you seventy year old moment uh, <laughs> And so I find that that Judaism understood consequences uh and you know long long time ago i had listened to uh uh a a speaker here in town uh and he he meant if you know he asked similar question that you did this morning about about the the, about people in the three uh three comments we could vote on and number one you want basically people are are basically bad and evil and they're known to do anything they can uh and he used an example and and i've always thought about this if you take two young toddlers and you throw them uh, put them in a in a playpen and you give them one toy uh they surely don't love and hug each other they fight to play with play with the toy so i think judaism understood the concept that we have to teach goodness and kindness and we have we have to have rules and laws to follow uh which uh, other monarchs and what have you haven't in, within the world And and we see they don't and even to this day we they don't do what's best for their people uh, they do what's best for themselves.
0: Yep. Yep. Gary, thank you for that. Um, that's that's very insightful. And this reminder that of our need to constantly be morally reflective and growing um, to meet our deepest potential lest we fall into the just the norms of the society at large. Um, and I appreciate those points about the monarchy as well. And it's around accountability. And it's worth noting that as I, I mentioned briefly earlier, how cool it is that every every king in the Torah is assigned a prophet to be a thorn in their side. The prophet is there to publicly critique the king. Right. Now, what most kings would do is just kill that person. Like, who are you? Like, you think Putin's letting somebody outside his outside his door, like just, you know, showing all his moral flaws? Uh-uh, you're out of here. Right. Um, you know, but actually each king needed a prophet to be there to publicly kind of, I don't want to say embarrass them, but hold them accountable. And that's pretty remarkable. It's also worth noting that in the biblical model, we have checks and balances. Um, we have an executive branch, which is the which is the, the melech, the king. Then we have the judicial branch, which is the Sanhedrin. Um, and then we have the legislative branch or, or the rabbinic authorities. And these have different roles in how they operate with each other, with each other. Um, way before modernity, this notion of these these different roles of governance um and these and these different roles. And yes, there were some rare times, just like the president today can go to war with executive privileges, so to and suspend um you know, normal procedures. So too, the king had that opportunity um to kill someone. The king was allowed to kill someone in a very rare scenario in a type of wars kind of situation without going through the courts. Um, now th- those suspensions, uh, you know, were rarely used, but, and we see in American law, how they can, you know, be dangerous, you know, to, uh, as well, but also why they can be necessary at times. So thank you. By the way, Gary, I think you were wearing that shirt last time I saw you, <laughs> by the way, I'm not exposing that Gary doesn't shower or do his laundry. I saw Gary, I saw Gary an hour ago. So, <laughs> okay. Ethan Wittoff, over to you.
5: Everybody. Um, I was at a, Uh, an event that VBM Denver was helping sponsor um, for the mayoral runoff here in Denver. One of the candidates, Mike Johnston said, you give people two things. He said, you can give them the truth and you can give them hope. Um, I remember studying Hobbes uh, in my political philosophy class back in Georgetown, Texas, um, and learning about his, thoughts about humans. I was also an economics major at the time and can remember learning John Smith and the invisible hand which goes even further to state that humans are self-interested beings who will act out of that self-interest and that that self-interest will sort of govern uh, who we are as a society. And, at the same time, I also have a portrait hanging across the room for me that says or la goyim, uh, be a light unto the nations, our covenant as Jewish people with God. Um, I love and and carry with me sort of the Kabbalistic teaching that when God was done creating the world, that God tried to fit themselves into a tiny, small triangle, but was too great and exploded out into the world. And that there is a little piece of God inside of each and every one of us. And so I can remember being in college, being a college student uh, who had studied economics and had studied Hobbes and thought about ways in which we need to regulate people. And at the same time, had sort of this deep calling and deep internal notion that humans in some way, shape or form are internally good. That is what my Judaism taught me. Um, Rabbi, I wonder if you had in any way sort of a, a similar experience in your life And I want to ask to you, Rabbi, and to the rest of the group, uh, how do you balance giving truth to the world and giving hope to the world? Um, In some ways, I see those two options, truth and hope, being reflected in some of uh, the philosophies that we're discussing today. It is true that there are bad things and there are bad people in the world who have bad intentions and who act badly. And it is also hopeful. And and I, I would argue that there is truth, that there is goodness inside of each and everyone that we see and that we meet and that there should be authentic hope in illuminating that hope inside of everyone. Um. And so my question to you all is how do we, how do we balance that truth and hope?
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for that reflection. Um. I'll, I'll share a few thoughts before I open up to others. Firstly, I think, one of the many reasons I pivoted away early in my life from going a political route into a religious route was the decision to want to be persuasive rather than legislative. There are many ways to create change through the legislative system, um, you know, adhering to mostly the lower aspects of of, of of people. Essentially, how do you use the system to make people do things they don't want to do um, or to not do things they do want to do? Um, And I was more interested in the persuasive people actually becoming, um, to live by their moral and spiritual potential from their own volition rather than using a system to get them to do so. Um, And that's a different plane of reality of how to exist on that educational space of of, um, people wanting to grow and do and be their best rather than on, on system construction. And that's not putting down the other side. Of course, we need that side as well. And But that's just a little bit of a reflection on my my own kind of thought process there um, around what kind of change we want to create in the world. And that's why I primarily don't work for legislative change in the world, because um, I think it's flimsy and it can be overturned and tossed over um, if we don't have change of heart, change of mind, change of community, change in relationship, people living by a higher calling. Um, And so nothing against political activists, but I think that they're missing the bigger picture. Um, Sometimes you can get a cheap win, but that win is not sustainable. And so um, to your second great point around truth and hope, and it's um, for me, the question is the level of vulnerability of the person I'm talking to. If a five-year-old is trying to fall asleep, they deserve hope, not truth. (laughs) If a person is on their deathbed, they deserve hope, not truth. If a person is um, co- has cognitive impairments, you know, and can't necessarily fully live with a certain level of higher truth, um, they deserve hope, not truth. If someone is operating on a different plane, I think they deserve our truth. Um, and, um, and I think we should avoid falsehood. Um, and I know people who like to be overly optimistic, not because they think it's truthful, which is great or not because they um um you know it's their disposition but because it makes them more popular they look better just to, just to be hopeful like i believe in the good i believe things are going to work out not because they believe it but it just it sells it sells i think that's a disservice to not to not to not speak truth and so yeah i think that tension is very real and i'm so glad you brought it up and i think it continues to play itself out in these philosophers Around what are we selling? If we're selling anything, what are we selling? Are we trying to get people to to you know be more visionaries and hopeful for what we can build? Or are we trying to get people aligned with a basic sense of what's true and what's good? And hopefully those won't clash much, but when they do, we have a hard decision to make. And when you're speaking to a group and some are vulnerable and some are not, how do we talk differently to them? Think about also if you're preying upon, um, you're you're preying upon a migrant. Um, And a migrant has um, the chance to go build a new life in America. On the one hand, someone is selling them um, this hope of the American dream of what they can have. On the other hand, which is true, there's a great American dream. On the other hand, there's a hard truth and reality of what immigration looks like. Um, That's a different side of the story um, as to why people migrate um, and whether they should or not. And what are we um, what do we want to sell them? You know, when they're thinking about leaving their village? ok. Um, but um, so we're going to open up, you know, to Ethan's points and other points and um other areas want people want to go on. before we go to folks who have already spoken, let's just see if Ed or Steve or Sarah or r h or Eddie want to jump in. Hi, Sarah.
6: Good afternoon. Um, like Lauren, I'm struggling with allergies. I would love to believe that we can be honest and hopeful, that we can deal with what is real in present moment and the struggles that so many people have in their lives and find something that, whether it's change or possibility or something to to strive for that indeed gives us hope. So that's my answer, Ethan. I I don't have a better one. I want to believe that we can do both. And and if I'm dying, I want you to be honest with me. I don't want you to give me hope. I just want
0: truth. Right, beautiful, beautiful, Sarah. Thank you for that. And um, that is a really complicated issue I think of a rabbinic letter that was once written um, where a woman's uh, son had died, um, but she was on her deathbed and how her other son kept it from her so she wouldn't have to die with that painful thought. And was that a gift to her or was that a deception to her um, to not know that as she was dying, her son had died? Um, those are hard questions. And um, though, you know, I know Ed, uh, there may be others here as well. I know Ed is really an expert here. I don't know if, I, I'm not calling on him to share. He's welcome to. But Ed has spent um, many, many years um, holding the hands of people dying. And, I'm, and, I, and I don't want to embarrass you, Ed, uh, but you're, you're exotic in my view. You're a righteous person. And so um, I, uh, you're welcome to share on that or not about how we think about truth in such a stage of vulnerability and anyways to pick up on sarah's point i would also like to believe that the deepest hope can be found within our deepest truths that grounding ourselves in what we grounding ourselves in what we believe to be most true that whatever the outcomes are to be we can find hope in just recommitting ourselves to those truths it's not a hope that oh things are just going to work out how i want them to work out it's a hope it's a hope that I'm walking a path of integrity, that and that's the best I can do is 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 walk on the path of integrity. So thank you, Sarah, um, Ed, R.H. Eddie, Steve. Oh, Steve, and then Ed.
7: Thank you, uh, Ethan, and and Rabbi, and Sarah. I I am deeply, deeply grateful for your reflections today. It it it, it just made me think. Uh, of of different ways of expressing what is not unique to me, but my modus operandi, that I believe that um, truth and hope are not necessarily adversarial and that there are exceptions. Bad things do happen, but I think over time we, we learn, we move on, we evolve. And, and the way you folks express what I'm trying to say uh, was was just magnificent it almost brings tears to my eyes it's just beautiful. Um, one thing that was said before and this this is totally a parallel uh, thought that wanting to get ahead of, of of someone is not necessarily meant to hurt that someone I think it's normal for all of us to want to um, we, we we have insights, and we want to build on them, and we want to achieve, and, and hopefully the person that we have gotten ahead of will want to vault beyond us. And I'm not quite sure where I'm going with that, but uh, it, it's something I believe. I believe in the inherent goodness, allowing for many exceptions of people, is the prevailing and motivating uh, force among humanity.
0: Mm, mm. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for that, yeah. On that last point, I've been thinking about in training my son to be a runner, um, whether I should he should just focus on running as fast as he can or running or or focus on passing people in the race. Um, and what does it mean to want to pass people? Um, you know, and, um, yeah, we live in a world that is mixed with co- competition and collaboration. And, yeah, to Steve's point, like, all pa- pa- passing people does not mean wanting to hurt them necessarily. So it's very interesting. Thank you for that, Ed, Ed Awata, We'd love to we'd love to hear from you if you still want to share.
8: Oh yes, thank you. Um, and I appreciate the comment, but I think it was a little overblown. Uh, my experience has been with uh, the dying, but at that point in their dying process, they are not conscious they are not alert they are not aware so the best that i was instructed to do is to listen Mm. to the breath because Mm. supposedly the breath was the soul speaking Mm. and that's all i did there was no exchange if you will but that aside there were certain things that happened that would make me feel that this person, although very complicated and they were all different, uh, had certain beliefs and Mm. whether I supported that or not didn't make any difference. I was just listening. But my real question (laughs) is uh, I think when we started this whole process, you mentioned that there was a time when, Uh, philosophy and religion were in sync, parallel, and then uh, split apart. Would you say that Hobbes, now that we sort of skipped ahead, if you will, is the point at which it was clearly a split or had it been developing all along? Um, And was it strictly a Western?
0: issue versus the Eastern philosophy. You hit the nail on the head, Adam. So glad you did that. Before I respond to that, though, I have a question for you. So you said it's listening to the breath. So in your training and experience, do you talk at all to to the person or do you just listen?
8: Initially, I want to try to find out if they are alert to uh, touch or voice. Yeah. and in 99% of the cases they were not. So mine was purely thought. Mm. And I have a couple of examples where I actually got some messages back. Wow. And I actually recorded it, what was happening. And the next week i found out that somebody had responded to that now it wasn't the patient that ultimately died but it was a third party that came in nobody knew what it was but responded to all of my thoughts and my questions which sort of validated if you will in me that listening to the breath was going to give you some indication of what this person felt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never knew that what the truth was or if they had any hope or if they had any beliefs at all. Um, I just listened. Now, like I said, there were a couple of incidents where it was apparent to me, though, that, uh, yeah, they had some hope. They might have started without it, but after sitting with them, it was apparent that um, they they had some hope in wherever they were going, mm. uh, in whatever they believed in.
0: Mm. Beautiful, Ed. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow, I've I, I've got lots of other follow ups with you, but uh, to go to your question, um, and I'm so glad you said that because for those who felt we might have been doing too much God talk um, in in philosophy. Um, you'll be pleased to know we've made a transition now um, because philosophy and theology were were kind of in, deeply intertwined um, up to this point. We saw that in the medievals. We saw that in the ancients. I mean, the Greeks were a little bit complicated uh, an anomaly, but uh, certainly in the medievals that we were looking at, the Muslims and, and Maimonides. And now as we're moving into pre-modernity, we're going to see a real separation and the birth of the secular state of secular democracy, of philosophy being uh, divorced from theology, by and large. Of course, it's never psychologically fully divorced because people's beliefs inform their ideas. Um, but in many ways, um, we are now moving into a new era of, of pre-Madurian Madrid. We're going to go to Descartes next week, and then into Locke and into the utilitarians. We are in a whole new territory. I'm sorry, I can't speak to the East um i really um i i i we we did the buddha and we did confucius and i am just not a scholar in eastern philosophy and it would be so amazing to be able to go into that as well and i wish i could speak to it but i hope you'll research it uh, and and i know you know a lot already and share back with us but in terms of the western philosoph- philosophical world um this is a this is a big turning point this is absolutely a big turning point and what it really means is that the theological dogmas were replacing critical thought in many ways and critical thought explodes because of this break from the church because and and in the i mean in the jewish world as well of course but but by and large in in the western christian world um the break from the from that and now religion has its place it's not central okay there's a place for religion in my life but it's very different than the place of science the role of government the role of um, the personal life, the role of community. And so um, it becomes minimized in many ways, Um, which is actually, okay, lots more to say there, but we're at our time here, friends. So I thank you so much for joining. Many blessings. See you
8: soon.